The Glenn Show is brought to you by the Manhattan Institute. Please consider becoming a paid subscriber at glennlowry.substack.com. As a subscriber, you will receive new episodes on Mondays instead of Fridays and get access to exclusive content, ticket pre-sales to live events, monthly Q&As with Glenn Lowry and John McWhorter, and other benefits. Your contribution will also help to fund grassroots initiatives that empower Black development across the country as we donate 10% of our profits to the Woodson Center. Thank you. All right, we're underway at the Glenn Show. Hey, John, how are you doing, man? I'm good. How are you? Doing well, doing well. This is Glenn Lowry of the Glenn Show. I'm with John McWhorter. John and Glenn are conversation partners here at the Glenn Show. We talk every other week bi-weekly conversations about race, culture, politics, and other matters, and we've been doing it for a long time. Uh, I teach at Brown University, and I'm John Paulson, Senior Fellow at the Manhattan Institute. The Manhattan Institute sponsors The Glenn Show. Additional support for The Glenn Show conversations between John and Glenn comes from ACTA, the American Council of Trustees and Alumni, which also supports The Glenn Show. So welcome, John. Thank you. Uh, I was just reflecting on the fact, John, that you and I have been talking at our podcast here about race, culture, politics, and related matters for 16 years. 16 years. That's longer than a lot of people's marriages last. This has <laughs> outlasted my marriage. Yes. Yeah. It's 16 years is a long time to do anything. I mean, things tend not to last that long. And here we are. I went back and took a look at our inaugural conversation, November 12th, 2007, uh, is when it was posted at Bob Wright's platform, bloggingheads.tv, which is where we got our start. We were the black guys at bloggingheads.tv before we became the black guys at The Glenn Show. And it was a very interesting experience, John. Uh, You know... 16 years is a long enough time for a person to change his mind about one thing or another, I should think. Or should be, yeah. The thing that most interested me, and I, I, I'm saying this by way of introducing today's conversation because i like for us to explore some of the changes in our respective ways of thinking about the issues at hand that have uh, transpired over the last decade and a half. Um. One of the things that uh, I I was most intrigued by was the fact that in those years, I was less conservative than you, John, it seemed to me anyway. I mean, I, you know, maybe (laughs) maybe you've moved left, maybe I've moved right or maybe a combination of the two or or something. But it's really quite striking that in some instances, our roles seem to be reversed in the conversation. Back then, yeah, I remember thinking that if I was going to go up against Glenn Lowry, I was going to have to defend my quote-unquote conservative beliefs. And that dynamic seems to have changed completely between us very gradually over the years. Yeah, that's right. You had published Losing the Race in 2000, and you had published Winning the Race, Mm -hmm. your follow-up book, Mm -hmm. uh, shortly before our conversation. Mm -hmm. I had published The Anatomy of Racial Inequality in 2002, which is definitely a more progressive take on the race question than is you're losing the race. And then I I think also, I was just going to say at the time, I was probably 
to the extent that I was known, it was as the quote-unquote black conservative who writes for the New Republic. This was before the New Republic fell apart. And so that was, that was the gig that I really identified with at the time, the TNR. Have you seen uh, uh, no, uh, Martin Peretz's The Controversialist, his memoir? Um, I have not engaged it. Um, I am aware of it, but yeah. <laughs> well, I've, I've got the book on my table. I've taken a look here and there, especially in the index uh, under the listings for Glenn Lowry to see what he's had to say about. Mm. Me. John McWhorter comes in for some discussion as well. He's proud to have published at the New Republic iconoclastic Black writers like yourself, myself, Stanley Crouch, Albert Murray, uh, Wynton Marcellus, uh, you know, and, and so on. He, he, t- he ticks off the, the acceptable Blacks that he and Leon Weaseltier uh, were reaching out to to, to yeah, we get to be content for his magazine. In a list, right. I was mortally offended by when the New Republic was taken over by the new people and they made that comment about how they were going to reach out to a wider range of Black thinkers instead of just ones like you and me. I think it was specifically you and me, as if there had been something wrong with that. I thought that was a really low blow, and I have never forgiven them for it, although I'll bet precisely nobody works there now who worked there when they first took over. But still, yeah. Yeah, well, we could go in that direction, but let's not. Let's talk about 2007. And uh, what I had in mind for our conversation today is to play some outtakes from that inaugural Glenn mm-hmm. and John discussion, and then just have us kick it around and see how we react when we hear ourselves from 16 years ago. This is going to so, be very interesting. Ah, here, there we are. <laughs> <laughs> Good Lord. Look at how you technology have a baby has face. Changed. Look, I look well, 17. Yeah, you got, you're holding a phone to your ear. Yeah, you My look like you're God. 17 years old. And wow. I look like I'm 45, even though I'm like 59 in that photo. But never mind. Never mind. Well, black don't okay. crack. So I'm going to ask Nikita to play the first clip, which is um, the revolution, where you and I take different positions on an important issue. Go ahead, Nikita. The vast majority of poor people who are not black, the vast majority of people who are at the economic margins in and out of unemployment on welfare rolls mm-hmm. are not black. Mm-hmm. And... To the extent that it's a useful thing for people across the racial lines to see their uh, economic and social situations as similar and to see their plot, their fate as shared, mm-hmm. their plight as common, mm-hmm. so that they can organize and pull themselves together in ways in new formations that cut across these lines. Mm-hmm. To that extent, talking about the problem in these broader terms, you know, like, um, you know, what has hmm. the government, we know what they've done for the rich with the tax cuts. What have they done for you? Yeah. This kind of talk is kind of undercut, you know, when we put it into a kind of racial and cultural thing. And this may seem odd to you coming from me. People think of me as always being, you know, a guy who wants to talk about black this and black that. But I think that the deepest problems that we we have in the country that we can solve together through our political action, our problems that cut across racial lines. I see what you mean, that it would be useful if we were talking more about poverty than about what gets the black man down, et cetera. And I, especially last year, I did a fair amount of visiting um, prisoner reentry programs and spending time talking to people and watching training sessions and things like that. Yeah. And to tell you the truth, Glenn, sitting in those rooms with um, black and brown, mostly men, 
who've done time, looking at the problems that they face. The idea that in my lifetime or yours, we're going to fix it so that those guys see themselves as the poor rather than black guys, is just impossible for me to see. And maybe that's not a good thing, but the self-conception there is as a what Stanley Crouch would call a Negro. And we can't change that, certainly not anytime soon. It, it's not just their self-conception. It's also how they're conceived. Uh, I, I mean, I think true. it's every bit as important or maybe even more important that your typical voter uh, who doesn't live in the ghetto sees them as not so different from me. And you, yeah, maybe a little screwed up. Yeah, maybe a little they're, they're and, and Yeah. Yeah, but still, you know, pretty much if we were in their situation, we'd probably be struggling with some of the same challenges. And, you know, uh, let's cut them a little slack or give them the benefit of the no, doubt or give the them view. a second chance yeah. or whatever. You say it's not to be? If I follow you, it's the, the, or, the mainstream white person does not see the poor black guy as just the poor. They see a poor black person. Is that what you're saying? Oh, no, no. I know, they, I know that's what they see. I wish they didn't, though. I, yes. I think they're wrong to see that way. They may be, but we can't fix that. Maybe that I don't makes know if that's true. Is it really true that we can't fix that? How would that? we fix it, Glenn? I mean, really. Well, 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 well I, how? I don't know. Okay, that's just the honest answer. I don't know how we would fix right. it. But I'm not prepared to rule out our priori that we could. But I'm in a hurry. I, let me, I just want to give some examples. Okay. Uh, if you had said in 1958 mm -hmm. that um, women and their desire to be um, uh, uh, freed of all of the burdens of uh, expectation and limitation and prejudice and discrimination and so forth mm -hmm. associated with what roles were fit and not fit for them, mm -hmm. that the consciousness of people needed to be raised in such a way that when they looked at a girl and saw a daughter, mm -hmm. they realized just as much as if they had seen a son, that uh, that was their child and that their child's future was, uh, you know, uh, at stake with respect to how we resolve some of these issues about uh, women before Betty Friedan. Mm -hmm. If you had said that, I think a lot of people would have said, I don't know how you're going to get there from here. Mm -hmm. If you had said about gays mm -hmm. 15 years ago mm -hmm. that uh, the issue of is their way of life, their style of life, their choice or orientation of uh, living with respect to sexuality merely another alternative way to live that deserves to be respected mm -hmm. and accommodated to the extent that anybody else does stop trying to tell them to be like you. Let them be. Mm -hmm. Uh, that that idea could uh, catch and could have currency and could maybe even become a dominant idea in this country, which I think it will inevitably become. Well, uh, yeah, people would have said you're mad. That's right. They would have said you're mad. Yeah. So I don't know why it is that with better leadership. I mean, now, if every time there's some disturbance uh, like the Gina Six situation mm -hmm. or some incident like the Duke lacrosse players, that Al Sharpton holds a news conference or someone like him goes on uh, on uh, O'Reilly mm -hmm. and uh, spouts off. Mm -hmm. And a bunch of uh, black academics, uh, I'm sorry, but uh, <laughs> it's going to sound like I'm joining your, your side. And I'm, I, hey, academic friends out there, I'm still on your side. But Bye. bottom line is we got a lot of knuckleheads uh, running around saying a lot of uh, alienating stuff. If, if that's the way that the case gets presented, I grant you it's not going to persuade anybody. Yeah. But I really don't think those are the only alternatives. And, uh, before and you us. know, Glenn, I say this with sincere respect, but what's going to change it is also not fine writing such as yours, where you say things like, what kind of a nation are we to not attend to, et cetera, et cetera. And the reason for that is because, and history is always interesting in these ways. Yes, who would have known that there was going to be a feminist revolution? But one thing that we know now is that there already was a civil rights revolution. Something happened which you couldn't have seen coming even 10 years before. It occurred. 
Everybody knows it. And we're at a point now where what you're implicitly calling for is a second revolution. You're not putting it that way. But the idea is that something dramatic and massive is going to happen again. And given that something already did happen, and that people's general opinion is that something happened, that racism is nothing like what it used to be, and even if life isn't perfect, it's time for people to just deal. We cannot combat the fact that that is going to be the main barstool opinion. We've talked about how really there needs to be a more nuanced position, and we can be on the sidelines assuring that the government puts people in a position to be able to help themselves. But that revolution that you're talking about, I don't see how it could come again. And you, Yeah, well, <laughs> we haven't changed that much. <laughs> so I was uh, calling for a transformation of consciousness around racial issues in which the white majority would come to see the struggle problems of the underclass of the marginal black unemployed, underemployed uh, poverty housing project, uh, et cetera, as our problem and the our being we Americans and not the us them of black and white. You were not so sanguine about that. Well, that's that's interesting to see what I was saying then. I completely agree with that me who's saying that all talk of a revolution is hopeless. It, it's not going to happen again. And in 07, we were just coming off of the idea that had been dominant for about 10 years that there was possibly going to be a hip-hop revolution. It's interesting. Hip-hop people, or at least hip-hop academics, now deny that they ever said anything like that. There's even a book with that title. Hip-hop revolution, that we were going to hip and hop our way to the top, and somehow a consciousness was going to be formed by, I think the idea was that rappers were going to make people vote more, and you know, there was going to be this big thing happening. That's not going to happen, and I think very fewer people talk about it, but 07 is so long ago that we're yeah. talking before Occupy, before the Occupy movement got people yeah. talking about the 1%. Those two people we just saw would have been baffled if anybody had said anything about the 1%. That expression didn't exist yet. And I also noticed that if you said in 2007 that racial preferences should be eliminated and instead there should be socioeconomic preferences, that was really pushing the envelope back then. It was a brand new argument. It was thought to be really a, a rather backwards way of thinking. These days, I find that that's pretty much a mainstream position. There is a sliver of people concentrated in academia and activist circles and, you know, concentrated. No, I'm not going to say among people of color because it's also the, the fellow travelers who are white, etc., who firmly believe that it still should be about race because racism exists and because of the cops, essentially. But to now say before a general audience, it should be about socioeconomics. Say if I write about it in The Times... Nobody thinks of it as some kind of bizarre position, all of which is to say that I think that we do in America in general think of class and socioeconomic inequalities more spontaneously with less guilt in a way than we did 15 and 16 years ago. Now, I don't think it's going to create a revolution. But there's been more room in the general consciousness for thinking that way more and more. And I don't mean this to sound dismissive, but more and more, when I think about, for example, the, the, the Newark ex-cons who I was trying to, to work with at the time, more and more it's going to be seen that there is a highly self-consciously black realm like that. It's going to be seen as a small side of society, an increasingly 
an increasingly small number of people because there are just so many different kinds of people in society at this point. And I think we're more aware of it than ever. The idea that there are black people and white people and then everybody else is watching, that's more obsolete yeah. every year. So that's what I think. Let, let me ask you this uh, before we move on to the next, which is that was 2007, November. One year later, 2008, November, Barack Hussein Obama was elected president of the United States, running self-consciously on a campaign not dissimilar from the point of view that I was espousing, namely, can't we all get along? It's not a black and a white. It's, it's a question of human uh, interest and responsibility and mutual uh, dependence and all of that kind of thing. And I embody, it's in my very DNA. That's a quote. It's in my very DNA. He embodied the very kind of transracial, humanistic posture that I was uh, perhaps uh, quixotically or, you know, I idealistically that I was longing for. What happened? Didn't, didn't Obama offer us a chance to get where I was hoping the country would go? And was it not a missed opportunity? That's a question to you. Yeah, it, it was. And it wasn't his fault. It was the serendipity of history, social media. And so it was in 2009 that Twitter and Facebook became norms. And they quickly, they did two things. One was that they helped focus the Tea Party. And the Tea Party movement against Obama created a conception that that was all about racism on the left. When I will go to my grave saying, do you think if John Edwards had been elected that there would be no Tea Party? I have never heard a coherent answer to that question. There would have been the same thing. There may have been a racial tinge to that movement against Obama, but really that was about Republicans going out of their minds. No offense to those who may be Republicans, but I think we can all agree that something started happening in the late aughts that was not a good thing in many ways. And yes, did culminate in the election of you-know-who. And so there was that. No, we, we, can't, we can't all agree to that, but, but that's... Well, some <laughs> might suppose. And so I think um, first, the first problem was that the left started... The left took that as an indication that Barack Obama's election didn't really mean anything significant in terms of racism, which was not true. And then after that, in 2012 and 2013, was Trayvon Martin and then Mike Brown. And for better or for worse, neither one of those cases would have become national news if it weren't for social media. They would have been local cases that maybe flickered a little bit in the New York Times, but social media made those things national sensations. And that further reinforced the idea that racism really hasn't changed since 1950, except for people are more polite. If there were no social media, if Barack, o, Barack Obama had been elected in a context where everything was the same as it is now, but social media hadn't happened, I do believe that we would have turned a major corner based not only on what he symbolized, but on things that he tried to do. But social media, it, it, it reinforced tribalist feelings. And I'm sorry to say that it was, it was on the left, so that the left came to cherish pretending racism hasn't changed as a sign of moral worth, and we're stuck with it now. That's what I think of. Okay, I, I disagree, but we don't have time to explore this thing fully. I, I would just want to get on the record. I don't think Obama handled his portfolio in terms of race relations at all very well. Cambridge cops behave stupidly. If I had a son, he'd look like Trayvon. Uh, Al Sharpton as the ambassador to America. No, I, I, what I wanted him to do was to actually be the black, white president of the United States. I'm black and I'm white. 
It's in my very DNA. And what I wanted him to do was to shout down the demagogues. I didn't want Al Sharpton anywhere near what he was doing. And I didn't want him saying, I'm speaking for black people when I say the following thing. I wanted him to say, I'm speaking for the country. I wanted him to say, if you go out there and break the law and burn down the city, I'm going to empower to the extent that I am legally authorized to do so the forces of law in, uh, in order to, uh, to come down on you with a ton of bricks. That's what he should have said when Freddie Gray killed in the back of a van in Baltimore, uh, started to ride in that city. That's what he should have said when Michael Brown killed by a police officer and then the subsequent uh, deliberations led to rioting in Ferguson, Missouri, and so forth. That's what I thought. I, I thought he should have been a law and order, tough down the middle. He should have carried forward with some of the stuff that he initiated in his campaign with critiques of Black culture and stuff. Instead, I think, the opportunity for the first Black president of the United States to point the country in a different direction was missed. I think he played the cards that he was dealt with an eye toward the half century nearly that he will spend as former president of the United States, African-American icon, celebrity, and so forth, uh, instead of the You think that's what he was thinking? Um, yeah. I mean, no, I don't know. How do I know <laughs> what he was thinking? That's my, that's my unkind surmise. Just, anyway. just wondering. He's an opaque person. It's very hard to know what's going on in there. So yeah, I, I was never thinking of it as that cynical. I just wondered if you knew something I didn't. But No, I, I don't know anything. Mean. I'm just cynical. Let's move on. <laughs> okay, uh, so here you and I are discussing the importance of deindustrialization as a factor accounting for the disadvantaged status of African Americans persisting into the 21st century, and we have rather different points of view on that. Let's say that welfare reform has been a good thing, if a far from perfect thing, for the women that we're talking about. Now it's about the men. Now, as far as I can see, one of the most important aspects of helping the men is prisoner reentry programs. That has to become a new gospel among us. And I also feel that we really need to do something about the war on drugs because that has a lot to do with the high incarceration rates. Now, the last time, I, now, the last time I checked, what students are being taught in universities about race is still the same old business about the factories moving away, William Julius Wilson. We read the Savage Inequalities by Jonathan Kozel with the myth that the reason that schools and minority communities don't do well is because they're not given enough money. It's that same sort of litany, and I don't think that a student would be hearing about, nor do I think that a grad student is encouraged to study, say, prisoner reentry efforts. Which ones work? Which ones don't? That's and how true, we're going to work on this? Is there really a dominant strain? Well, well dominant, I don't know. I mean, well, what, I can what I can tell you is that uh, I teach an undergraduate class on crime and punishment here. Mm -hmm. I'm very interested in prisons. I, I gave the Tanner Lectures in Human Values at Stanford earlier this year mm -hmm. on this subject. Uh, you know, I'm, I write books, too, and I'm mm -hmm. going to be writing about this. So, so uh, I teach my kids a lot. I mean, we spend a lot of time talking about prison reentry issues. I bring people into the classroom who work in, you know, nonprofits around here in Providence and in other places. Mm -hmm. I bring in former prisoners mm -hmm. to talk to these people. I bring in prison guard union uh, and uh, prison administration officials to talk to them about what's actually going on. And I'll tell you this, and you'd be, I think, hardened to a certain degree. Uh, I had a former inmate mm -hmm. uh, who's now out and working for one of these nonprofits mm -hmm. uh, come into my class and uh, talk about uh, he had written a book called uh, uh, the New Jack's Guide 
to life inside prison. Hmm. Okay, so he's an old head who's been in for eight years or whatever when he wrote this, this book. And this book was, or an older book? Uh, it's, I think it's probably the last five Something years. I don't like think he's been out that long. Right. Uh, it's on my website uh, as one of the readings for my punishment course if a person wanted to look at okay. it. But what I'm saying is he, the, one of the first things he said to the students, he says, you're going to hear all about root causes arguments mm-hmm. uh, in uh, classes like this. Mm-hmm. And he says, I think they have their place. But I'll tell you one thing. When I'm talking to somebody who is not yet in prison or who just got out, mm-hmm. I never talk to them about root causes. Mm-hmm. I never talk to them about, you know, large scale social forces or whatever, whatever. What I talk to them about is, are you going to the GED class tomorrow? Mm-hmm. Because that's the only thing that matters yep, and that idea, for that guy. Is, is he, is he going to get up and go to the class? That perspective is out there on the vine. I think so more and more. And Bill I'm saying it's at Brown. That's the point I want to make is that the, the kids who are coming yeah. to the liberal bastion of Ivy League uh, political correctness are getting that okay. in their class. In your particular classroom, and because you are brilliant, you have sense <laughs> oh, enough to do that. God. On the other hand, let me simply observe that um, the, tr- the economic transformation of manufacturing mm-hmm. – that begins with factories moving out of the center cities and into the metropolitan area, mm-hmm. out of the northeast and midwest and to the south of the United States, and then ultimately offshore. Right. This is a massive thing that's happening in our time. I mean, it's a huge transformation, and yeah. it has far-reaching implications, not just in this country and not just for poverty, but all over the world. I don't see the evidence. And and, and and to to say, you know, if I'm looking at the if I'm looking at post nineteen fifty urban America, uh-huh. to find a place within my account mm-hmm. of the transformation of post nineteen fifty urban America, the troubles of the cities, the mm-hmm. uh, so called black underclass and all of that, to find a place within my account for these big forces of huge economic transformation seems not only appropriate desirable, it seems absolutely necessary. And a count no. that left that out, to my mind, no. would be a woefully incomplete story. Oh, no, no. It's, uh, story. no it's, it's quite complete. Glenn, I see, I'm sorry, I honestly see no place for that in the narrative at all. Not because I have some problem with it, the basic idea of it, but because it just, so what, it doesn't seem to explain anything. And it's not just me, but there are academic studies which show again and again that the movement of those low-skill manufacturing jobs can account for, at best, one-third of black male unemployment. There are various studies along that's that line. That's a big number, John. But still, it's only one-third, and what about yeah, the other Yeah, but that's a big number, John. Why, Nobody said it was the only thing going sure, on. Sure, but why would we <laughs> I'm looking at you shaking your head as we watch that thing. One third, explaining one third of anything seems to me to be worth a mention. What, what's up with that, man? Why are you so hostile, even to this day, to my man, William Julius Wilson, the great, uh, he's in his 80s now. He's a, you know, he's a godfather of uh, the urban sociology and whatnot. What's wrong with you, man? Mm, no, that, that really won't do. Um, and it's not that I don't have great respect for for Professor Wilson, but um, that is the most condescending, ah, wrong word to use. It underestimates what people do when work disappears, not only intuitively, but in terms of the facts. And so, for example, the one third, I got that actually partly from something that you wrote. And it's one thing to say that that didn't help. Like if it was one third, then the proper phrase is, it didn't help that low-skill jobs moved away. But as you and I both know now, as well as we did in 2007, that is often discussed as if it was basically the only thing worth talking about. There was this great injustice, these factory jobs moved away, and black communities went to hell, and there was nothing anybody could do. So part of it is 
the way it's spoken about. And I'll say again, the amount that it mattered justifies saying only it didn't help that. There were a whole bunch of other things that really mattered, I think, a whole lot more. If all it was was the factory jobs moving away, then people would have moved to find the jobs or they would have been resourceful and come up with other jobs. As we know from what brown-skinned, including Caribbean and African immigrants in those exact same neighborhoods are doing right now. So, yeah, I have a, it, I have a bee in my bonnet about it. But it's also that, and this, this is partly my fault, this is something I've done my entire adult life. I become obsessed with something. I do this rabbit warren study of it. I take it and I shake it like a dog shaking a bone. I look at it from all sides. I get obsessed with it. I scribble out my case and I polish it and I send it out to the world. And then I don't bother to publicize it the way I should and nobody really reads it. And so nobody knows where I'm coming from. I do that in my academic work. I have a whole corpus of linguistics work that nobody has ever read and it's partly my fault. And on the Indianapolis deindustrialization work, I spent a year studying that one interesting city, studying maps of exactly where factories were, studying the black newspapers, one issue after another, studying what employment opportunities there were in Indianapolis in the 1950s and 60s, talking to people who had been there. Damn, I know a lot about black Indianapolis, which is a city I've spent literally three hours in in my life. And I wrote it all out in my book, Winning the Race, which almost nobody read all the way through, partly because it was too long. But I could not study Indianapolis and come away thinking that factories moving away had anything decisive to do with what happened in black Indianapolis starting in the late 1960s. But, you know, I should have publicized it more. So so what did happen? Is it culture? If it's not uh, the structure of economic opportunity? That's a question. It was two things. It was, and you and I have always disagreed about this, and there's major room for it at, at this point, which is I think the change in welfare laws was seismic in shaping incentives among people. And I think that then there was the more elusive thing, the cultural change, where you go from 1960, which is we're going to make the best of the worst, to 1970, which is it isn't fair that it's the worst, and so society has to change around us. And so there was that new fist-in-the-air idea. But not fist-in-the-air, because Malcolm X was about doing our best and basically leaving white people completely out of the equation. But there was this new idea that our job is to change society instead of dealing with what it's presented. You've still got that in the ferocious resistance to changing racial preferences, for example. So that, it was those two things. It was the new black power mood, and it was how welfare made it possible to live a very different life. And it's not that everybody did it, but enough people did it, and it wasn't their fault that you had a whole new change in what was considered normal in inner city black communities. But it was not that the Coca-Cola factory moved to the suburbs or to China. That, that wasn't it at all. So correct me if I'm wrong, but what I see here is that your problem is one of narrative. If, if, as a sociologist or historian, if I find something explains one third of something, I want to take note of it. But as, as a person writing the story, trying to motivate people, trying to get their heads in the right place, so they can exercise agency on behalf of their own well-being. That's not the story that I want to tell them. Forces outside of anybody's control are driving you into the corner that you're in, uh, stuff like that. So you and I actually in 2023 are pretty much on the same page about that. But we weren't in 2007. It's also about respect, though, because, you know, that that story that some this guy, he, he, he leaves high school 
And there's no job where he's stamping out tires or putting on bottle caps or something like that. And so he, you know, he buys a gun and all the women in the neighborhood get pregnant at 17. What kind of people are those? I just, I don't like that story for that reason too. I, I find it disrespectful or I, from a black person, I find that it paints us as having very low expectations. The idea that the black lawyer and the black doctor move out of the ghetto and therefore their next door neighbors who are poorer start shooting each other and having babies at 16 because the middle-class people were role models. That doesn't make any sense. That's not how poverty works. I just find these things to be very depressing portraits of people I knew, including my middle-class parents who moved out of the ghetto. It's just, I don't like it. Some of it's visceral. Yeah. Respect. I mean, we're on the same page today about that. Respect and dignity, Mm -hmm. uh, which would be the foundation for genuine equality, where you're not a client being patronized by pitying uh, white people, but instead you are a full-grown man standing on your own two feet or woman with your back straight and your shoulders back, taking care of your own business as best you can. And a decent society would try to support and help you, but it wouldn't give you an excuse to lay down and give up. Right. Yeah, we, we, we agree there. That's right. Okay, since we're talking about welfare, let's move on to the next clip, which is you defending Charles Murray, if I recall correctly, uh, on the welfare reform questions. And me kind of agreeing, but kind of holding back, you know, because hmm. it's Charles Murray after all. But one reason I'm suspicious of, of think tank research sometimes and of uh, the, the sort of programs that are being pushed there mm -hmm. is that I think uh, people are trying to make an end run mm -hmm. around uh, what is really a very necessary vetting process, like peer review oh, of your research yeah. at journals and things of this kind. They're making an end run around that. And then they're, uh, uh, Charles Murray, I think of in his work on intelligence is a classic example of this. Yeah. And then they sort of defend themselves by saying, well, those are a bunch of politically biased people anyway. Why should I have to submit to their view? When in fact, the issue is, was your statistical analysis accurate? Were your data actually saying what you said that they said? Oh. Did you really identify causality in the ways that you claim? Oh, dear. You know, yeah. things like oh, that. Oh, yeah. You say, oh, dear. Why? Because <laughs> unfortunately, sometimes, Glenn, based on the world that we actually live in, the America that we actually live in, the academics, despite the statistics, and you know, God bless statistics, are not necessarily correct. And the way that we know this is not because of how the numbers come out, but because of how society comes out. So, for example, you mentioned Charles Murray, and yeah. there's the bell curve. But what about losing ground, which was yeah. the most notorious address of the problem with welfare as we knew it? Now, as far as I know... The Academy was not terribly interested in the idea of a true, from the ground up, reform of the way welfare was working, such as what we've had since 1996. And there was a great deal of work showing what sorts of disasters might occur if we made any real changes. And statistics were able to show that. That's what statistics can do. Charles Murray had an idea, which certainly was not based upon the depth of analysis that, say, a Robert Greenstein had. But... The media and the government yeah. picked up his ideas. And one thing we know now is that since 1996, black child poverty is down. More poor black women are working. It's not perfect. But I don't, think, I don't think that we can say that what happened in 1996 was wrong. I think it's agreed. No, that I we think you're right. I back. think and, and I, I believe, frankly, um, John, that that is the view of at least the centrist uh, research community 
in economics and sociology and policy studies now, about welfare reform. Not perfect, now, but uh, looks like it on the whole has been a change for the better. Right. I, I should just mention that in 2007, you had uh, moved from your academic post to a position at the Manhattan Institute, a think tank, which sponsors the Glenn Show this, to this day, Isn't that uh, but was not doing so at the time. <laughs> ah. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. Yeah, back then, I'm not a Columbia, folks. I, at the time, I had no idea I would wind up in a full-time position at Columbia or any Ivy League school. I was a think tank worker. I think I can say at this vantage point, I was getting a little bored only writing for the media. But that was me as a think tanker where my job was just to write for the Manhattan Institute. And the Manhattan Institute, part of what they were paying me for, although I wasn't thinking of it in that session, was to publicize the idea that welfare reform had been a, a, a good thing. And the Manhattan Institute had supported Charles Murray's work on that. And yeah. what, what with the bell curve and the whole issue with race and intelligence, it should also be said that the Manhattan Institute let him go on the basis of that. But they supported losing ground. They created that. And um, I think that they created a good thing. And Glenn, I would agree with everything I said back then on that. Now, I don't want this uh, underscoring. Uh, I mean, I, don't, I want to underscore a point that might not be evident, which is I was pulling rank by saying we in the academy with mm -hmm. tenure, do statistics right. Mm -hmm. You guys writing these uh, light pop pieces for magazines from a think tank perch are not as deep as we are. And you were saying, I think, and you can speak for yourself, all of your quote unquote depth with all of your statistics can obscure the common sense observations about how society is working, which people like Charles Murray in his book, Losing Ground, um, have, uh, have made. I would say that, but then I would also very briefly add also, not only how society works, but how society proves itself to work, such as it did after 1996, when all of those people were saying that black women were going to be sitting on subway grates, shivering in the cold, etc. And nothing remotely like that ever happened. So that too. Let's move on to the last clip. Now, uh, the Manhattan Institute sponsors the Glenn Show in 2023. But in 2007, I was well ensconced in my uh, position at Brown University, and I kind of had a snooty attitude about places like the Manhattan Institute because they, after all, were not Brown University. Uh, and <laughs> John has just resigned his tenure at UC Berkeley and has taken up a position at the Manhattan Institute. And so... Uh, I share my misgivings, and he uh, gives his defense. Mm. Let's play that, that last clip. You're dissing, you're dissing us, John, by turning your back on the academy. You make it sound like nothing special is going on over here, that uh, you know, the Manhattan Institute is our equal. Mm. We don't think so. <laughs> we think the Manhattan Institute and other <laughs> such places, fine places that they are, making a contribution, are nevertheless not as clever as we are, not as <laughs> profound, not as... Uh, professionally credentialed, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. uh, in other words, we think some of your colleagues at the Manhattan Institute are flax. Mm -hmm. You know, what do you make of that? Well, <laughs> I've heard that argument. And, of course, right. I have to assess it on a case-by-case -case basis. I mean, obviously, there is a certain kind of concentration and erudition and depth of attention that pretty much only happens if you are an academic. But yeah. to tell you the truth, I frankly think that 
When it comes to the sorts of questions I'm interested in, which is race and history and sociology and where we're going to go in the future, so much of the work in the academy is biased towards a certain racism forever premise that I think the lack of academic profundity on the side of the think tanks and the bias in the academy are equal disadvantages and you just have to assess the work in terms of how it works. And so, for example, in my latest book, um, Winning the Race, I do take on academic sociologists and political scientists in terms of how they view race in this country and history and what needs to be done and the role that racism plays. And I openly say in the book that I know that my research now as a linguist, it cannot replace 20 or 30 years of going to conferences and sociology, etc. But, you know, I can read and I am an obsessive. And so I went through great amounts of material. And as far as I'm concerned, if there's something wrong with my analysis in that book, then I would like to see it Proven. Now, I can't speak for my other Manhattan Institute colleagues, but frankly, I, I think I'm right, or at least that the views are worth being put on the table. I became junior academic in doing that particular work. <laughs> I could practically mouth what he was going to say. That's, <laughs> that is exactly what, what I would say now. That's funny. Um, so... Yeah, go ahead. No, Glenn, what are you... Because, you know, what everybody's thinking at this point is, that was you saying that, and you meant it. And now, I mean, it's at the point where you are more think tanking, and with exactly the one that I was at, I mean, this is really, it's beautifully right. ironic, than academicing. I, I, I hope, hope I can say that. How did you get from there to here? Yeah, well, <laughs> I grew perhaps a little bit bored and tired of the grind, mm. you know, and, and lost some of my enthusiasm for this excitement you feel when, you know, you get past the three rounds of referees and your piece gets in the journal and you open up the journal and there you see your name, you know, on the table of contents printed on the cover of the journal mm -hmm. with mm. other very stellar and distinguished people. And, you know, you're a player. You're a player in the, the rarefied game of quantitative economics and the theory and the statistics. And, and, you know, your paper's getting cited and you're getting invited to go and talk to 30 people in a seminar room somewhere about your thing. But there are 30 of the real serious people in your field. And, you know, uh, and you get citations and, and it's all very good. And I maybe I got a little bit bored with that. Maybe I outgrew it to a certain degree, or maybe I aged out, you know, my most productive years for doing quantitative work were decades ago. And, you know, I, the ideas were not as fresh and as uh, compelling, perhaps the research ideas that I had uh, in, in this latter part of my career that I have been having, uh, you know, I don't know, you were talking about media, certainly the, the podcast medium and the the opportunity to engage a wide range of people on in interesting issues before an audience of serious and thoughtful, but not necessarily specialist uh, viewers and, and listeners and getting into the public uh, uh, discourse uh, with your, with your insights and your observations. That that's certainly, certainly a part of it. Becoming comfortable being a race, Specialist again, 
I had gone through a period where I thought I was going to turn away from doing race type stuff. And I saw technical economics as an alternative to the seemingly futile back and forth that we go through in arguing about the cultural issues. And I found myself drawn back into the cultural issues. I'm, I'm pretty sure that Michael Brown and Trayvon Martin and all of that had something to do with that. Um, look, I mean, I think I was right to say that the level of expertise and scientific acuity characteristic of the professional social science discourse in the journals and through the big university presses for the books is at a higher level. It, it's just a more rigorous engagement with the technical questions in the university than it is in the, in the think tank world. I think that that's true. But the engagement of the broader public shaping the uh, journalistic discourse about a problem, about how it is that political actors think about and frame the problem, uh, this is very important work too. And reaching a million people is a very qualitatively different thing than reaching 5,000 or 10,000 people, which is the maximum that you're going to reach when you're, you're, you're doing this specialized kind of work. And, you know, you can do a little bit of both, but I mean, I, there's some examples out there. Paul Krugman, your colleague columnist at the New York Times, he's got a Nobel Prize in economic science. He's definitely a player in the technical game, but he, at a relatively young age, I mean, I don't think he's written anything uh, noteworthy in terms of a contribution to technical economics in decades. Uh, and, and yet he's one of the most influential uh, people writing about American economic policy um, on the planet. So, you know, I, I've just somewhat taken a somewhat different path. I was snooty. I mean, my reaction to what I heard there was, oh, come on, give me a break. That's so precious. That That's so precious. You know, uh, that uh, the uh, irrigation of kind of rank, I'm pulling rank. I got a PhD. I got tenure. I'm in a, a top ten place. I'm, I'm, uh, you know. Have you seen my piece in Econometrica? Kind of thing like that. To people who are smart, like yourself, interesting, creative, uh, write well, engage with important questions, with something to say. Uh, so, mm -hmm. I um, I look back on that, and I'm thinking that part of where I was coming from, and I, I allude to it, was that. For winning the race, again, you know, nobody read it. And so how would anybody know that I did this? But in winning the race, I actually went through 10 years of race articles in the two leading journals of sociology. I actually read, to the extent that I could, about 50 articles. Everything about race. And I figure 10 years is representative. And what I found was a bunch of brilliant people writing some of the most nakedly biased work I had ever encountered. It was clear that everybody was hard left going into these things, trying to make a point. It was clear that refereeing was even determined by this. So one sociologist, I have no reason not to name him, Joe Fagan, had a piece where he just kind of chronicled young black men's reports of racism that they had encountered. And, you know, these are real people, but there's a such thing as how, you know, how do we know that they're telling the truth? How do we know that their perspective is the only one? What happened to the obsession with numbers? What happened to the exactness? But instead, you just have... 
you know, the stories of, you know, the guy walks down the street and he hears people locking their car doors sequentially as he walks down the street. Did that really happen? You know, to, to be honest, I've never quite believed that one, but we're just expected to think that that's something that happens regularly to black men. And um, it was so biased that I thought, I'm sorry. I understand these people have done very hard work that I am untrained to do, but there is also naked bias here. This is no more dependable as a picture of what's going on in the real world than somebody writing op-eds in USA Today. I really, I saw no difference. And then also, there's a very simple fact. I didn't think of it this way then, but isn't it interesting how if somebody writes something that's quote-unquote conservative or contrarian for, you know, the Manhattan Institute City Journal or something like that, readable, you know, rigorous, but readable and not with a whole lot of numbers. If it's somebody who's not saying the right thing, then it's all shallow. It's not real. You haven't done the study. But if that same person writes in praise of the usable stuff, if that same kind of writing is about how factory jobs moved away and everything went to hell in Detroit in two seconds, nobody ever says, how can we trust that person praising all of this work when they're not an expert? No, then they're just preaching the proper gospel. I find that, no, I'm not aiming this at you, but I find that arrogant. So if you say something against us, you're, you're wrong because you're too shallow. If you praise us, it doesn't matter whether you fully understand us or not. You're doing God's work and you're publicizing our perfect reasoning in accessible sources. No, you, you, you can't have one without the other. Until I see people being called shallow for praising work that they don't fully understand, I can't hear it that I'm not doing the right thing by writing about academic work in accessible sources. And yes, you're right. There is something seductive. It's not money. It's audience. That when you write, one of the hardest things about being an academic, even if you're at the top of your game, is that very few people are going to read what you do all the way through. Only the people who specialize in exactly what you do. You're lucky to get beyond that. Whereas, you know, if you write for the public, and especially if you get to a certain point, you know that you're being heard by millions of people. And therefore, there's more of a reason to get out of bed for that. It's not about chasing the fame, but why do the work if so few people are going to engage it? That sustained me for decades. But I must admit, these days, I do enjoy being able to write and know that it matters, basically, that it matters. But you can't do that if you write impenetrable prose and 60-page articles. So you have to choose. Yeah, you do some, you do a little of some and a little of the other thing. But after a while, you're probably doing more of the other thing. And I'm beginning to make my peace with it. Just beginning to make my peace with it. I'm still guilty. Of All that. right. Let me ask you this, because it's a question I'm asking myself these days. Your major objection, as I understand it, to the Academy, at least where it intersects with the questions that you're most interested in, is they've made up their minds already. They're, they have a narrative. They're not bending from it. They're not really objective investigators. They are rather polemicists of one kind or another, maybe sophisticated polemicists, but grinding an axe, grinding an axe. Do you think that the think tank world is not a place where people are grinding axes, where they haven't already got their minds made up, uh, et cetera? I mean, mm -hmm. isn't the Manhattan Institute a quote unquote conservative, self-consciously so? organization? Don't they have positions staked out, supported by their funders, which are biased to one degree or another in the direction of one value or another that uh, they, they are meant to be fo uh, fostering? Uh, so even if it's true that the universities aren't perfect, aren't they our best shot 
at creating uh, an institutional climate for the objective investigation of the important questions? And doesn't the movement of institutions that I know you admire, like Heterodox Academy uh, of uh, academics who are self-consciously promoting viewpoint diversity as a value for the university, uh, cause you to have some hope that things might get better in the future? Um, when it comes to race questions and universities, I have very little hope on that because of the nature of the professions. But you're right that think tanks are, um, are biased as well. The question is simply, who's right? It's a marketplace of ideas, and the intelligent person can decide who's right. But it really comes down to, and I'm going to put it in a very pointed way, Heather McDonald is no more or less likely to be correct based on the research that she does and the thinking that she does than a tenured sociologist or social psychologist or anthropologist or political scientist who looks at race issues in our times. They're both the same. Both are biased. And the issue is to find what the truth is between those biases. That's the way I came to see it based on not wanting to be caught short and thinking, is there something academics know to endure the withering contempt or sometimes just pity from, in particular, some academic sociologists I knew in the early aughts? Just it's so clear from them that somebody like me is this pathetic soul because I don't know what a chi-square is and I haven't read the right things. And I just thought, are they right? And frankly, I suspected they weren't. And it happened that they weren't. And so, yeah. Okay. Well, that completes our review of 2007. Mm -hmm. We're going to be doing this 16 years from now, John? I don't intend to, to age at all. So yes, I will be, <laughs> I will be right here in 2039 and... You you should be too, and we'll, we'll probably <laughs> we can do it again. That is the definition of optimism. I mean, anybody can do arithmetic. Add sixteen on to however old I am, and think about what that means. We'll see. I'm taking my vitamins <laughs> and getting my exercise. <laughs> he says, well, I can say this. I'll, I'll be seventy three by then. Yeah, I'm gonna yeah. be. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well. I can tell you this, it's been grand, it and has. I look forward to a continuation of our dialogue for however long it lasts. We still never so. stop. <laughs> <laughs> thanks a lot, John. We're going to call that a wrap. Yeah, thanks, Glenn. You bet.